The following is a text exchange which occurred between brothers on October 20th, 2021. 6.39 p.m. Today is the 70th anniversary of the Johnny Bright incident, wherein an African-American football player was assaulted multiple times during a game by white opponents who had announced their intention to do so before the game. It only took Oklahoma State a bit over a half century to acknowledge that they had done it. I knew that stuff before, but today I learned, according to one source at least, that he was knocked unconscious three times in the first quarter and eventually had his jaw broken. That is not cool. He was one of the guys I learned about from him playing in the Canadian Football League. Even though he was selected in the first round of the 1952 draft by the Philadelphia Eagles, he went and played in Canada because of the racism down in the United States. Straight from the heartland, this is Things I Text My Brother. Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of Things I Text My Brother, a series of conversations which have taken place between the Brothers Driard on subjects spanning the neighborhood and the globe, which will hopefully leave you smarter, kinder, and better looking. Today we're going to jump off from that dramatic reading that you just heard and discuss the topics therein. Maybe we'll talk about Johnny Bright. Maybe we'll talk about Canadian football. Maybe we'll talk about Jim Crow, broken jaws, and racism. But we haven't plotted an exact course because we want you to join us on that journey. I'm Jeff. This is Brad. Let's talk about our texts. But before we drop back to the past to examine a lesser known moment in our country's racist history, we need to take a look back because it's always important to make time to cleanse ourselves of our past sins and to continue our boundless quest for self-improvement through worthless information. Thus it's time for ablutions and edification. Well, Brother Brad, we've been at it too long without any ablutions. You've got one. What is it? Well, I probably have lots of them that I've been missing. Oh. But my ablution for this one is I was listening to the early part of episode 35, wherein we discussed people suffering from uncombable hair syndrome. We sure did. At some point in that early part of that episode, around minute four, I called it unchromable hair syndrome instead of uncombable. You really did. I didn't think of that as an ablution, but I thought of that as, man, my brother doesn't know how to talk. Uh, or read, one or the other. But obviously that would be an entirely different syndrome, and frankly, unless you needed to have chromed hair for a movie role or something, probably not all that <laughs> bothersome. Yeah, I'm hoping that my hair is unchromable. Right? I don't want my hair chromed. Yeah. I have to own it. I screwed it up. Well, that's a fantastic ablution, the most unchromable ablution we've ever had. But I have a bit of edification for us. Going back to episode 34, Glass Booty Delusions and the Fear of Heads Falling Off. You had said at some point in the podcast that Tchaikovsky, who had this fear of his head falling off, or at least his neck flopping over, that he ended up being able to conduct during the opening performances at Carnegie Hall. And that is absolutely correct. Oh, good, because I read that, and I was hoping you weren't actually going to make this an ablution and an edification. No, this isn't an ablution. This is edification. I just kind of wondered who else was there, and I did see a list of who else was performing. It was a five-day opening event, but that wasn't what ultimately caught my interest. What caught my interest is that in listening to the archivist of Carnegie Hall speaking, his name was Gino Francesconi. He was talking a lot about Tchaikovsky, and he had done some interesting things. He traveled over to Russia and tried to get the Russian archives to allow him to take a bunch of Tchaikovsky documents back to the U.S. 
And initially they said, no, you can't take our documents about Tchaikovsky. But then he mentioned that Tchaikovsky had traveled to Niagara Falls. And even though you weren't allowed to pick the flowers, he picked a flower, put it in his Bible and took it back to Russia. And this archivist, Gino Francesconi, when he was over there trying to get the Russians to let him borrow the stuff, he mentioned that he knew there were flowers in the Bible. And he asked them, do you have the Bible? And they said, yes. And they opened it up. And there were Tchaikovsky's flowers still in the Bible, which I thought was really cool. And after that, they didn't necessarily let him take all the documents home. But they did say, and this is fairly recent times, that if there happens to be a civil war within Russia and they consider Tchaikovsky's documents to be at risk, there is an agreement already in place saying that those documents will go to Carnegie Hall to be preserved during that conflict, which that just seemed like a cool bit of archivist history. But the story that I ended up with from the first night, from the opening night, was that Tchaikovsky was basically asked to write something special for the opening of the music hall, which occurred on May 5th, 1891 was going to be his conducting debut there at Carnegie Hall. And rather than creating a new song, he thought, I'm going to just rename one that I wrote for the coronation of Tsar Alexander III in 1883, and I'm going to pass that off as a new song. So he renames it instead of it being the coronation march, he renames it the Marche Solennelle, which would be a solemn march. And he conducts this song And he thought that nobody would know or care because remember back in Russia, he was a person who was very self-conscious and worried that people didn't like his music. So he couldn't really imagine that people in the United States knew his music. So he thought, I'll just pass this off. It'll be great. But the audience knew that he was just passing off a song that he had written like eight years earlier. But guess what the audience said afterwards? It was better. They said they just didn't care because they were so excited to have this Russian composer that they knew so well performing. They didn't care that he was plagiarizing himself and trying to pass it off. And ultimately, what came out of this was a bit of a good moment for Tchaikovsky, who had so many moments where he was uncomfortable. He came out of this thinking, they love me. They really love me. The people in the United States know my music and think it's good. I was once accused of plagiarizing myself in college by one of my professors. I remember that. Yeah. Did everybody celebrate you afterwards? Uh, No. And eventually the professor acknowledged that I wasn't actually cheating because I just took a paper I wrote before and added it to the new stuff I was writing for this class so I could have a more complete portfolio so I could apply for jobs and things like that. And eventually he understood my point. But Apparently, I didn't cite that it was my own work, so therefore, I was in violation of our policies. I did not know one could plagiarize themselves. Mm, Well, I just like the fact that Tchaikovsky was cheered by Americans in very much the same way that Rocky was cheered by the Soviet audience after beating up Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. I don't feel like that's true. It was. I don't believe you. Well, there's no way to prove it. This seems like capitalist lies. Capitalist lies. Today's text exchange basically is generated by my love for Canadian football and learning about a guy who was a star in the 1950s in the Canadian League and then finding out he had been a star here in the States as well, but he didn't continue playing in the United States because of the racism back here in our country. It's Johnny Bright, a guy who I think people should know a lot more about. So we're going to talk about him today, but what are we going to talk about first? 
I kind of wanted to start with a summary that I read. I was kind of researching sports incidences across time, you know, related to racism, sexism, violence on the field, things like that. Yeah. And history professor and author Dr. Donald Spivey noted that many black college athletes found themselves simultaneously scorned and loved. And that's probably true beyond athletics. It was probably true of movies and television and politicians and general life, right? I can't really say that much has probably changed for a portion of the population in the U.S. and around the world, I suppose. And so I know the Bright incident happened a while ago, but yet here we are still seeing those attitudes displayed within and outside the sports world. Yeah. I was just reading something about Jim Thorpe and finally the Olympic Committee reinstating his goals for the pentathlon, decathlon yeah. from the Olympics because he had been playing professional baseball. He just he didn't have the audacity to lie about his name like all the other college athletes that were playing professional sports illegally and Olympic athletes who were playing sports illegally. He told the truth and he got punished for it pretty severely. And being one of the greatest athletes in the history of college sports, you know, he was a great football player, obviously an incredible track athlete. And he also was a college national ballroom dancing champion. So <laughs> he was clearly a great athlete, but you have to assume that some of what he went through obviously was related to the fact that he was Native American. Sure. I was interested in specifically in black athletes within the intercollegiate athletic system. And I didn't do a ton of research into it, but I read one paper by a guy named Matthew S. Berry called Leveling the Playing Field, African-American and Collegiate Athletics. He was from Eastern Illinois University. I was just curious what the timetable were and, and what rules were in place. So just reading from his paper, he said that as early as 1940, there had been movements on college campuses to oppose segregation sports. However, broad mainstream support of athletic integration and reform did not take root until the 50s and 60s when many northern universities began to take proactive steps in voicing their dissatisfaction with segregationist practices in athletic departments. So we're talking about the black codes that took place after the Civil War when right away southern states are trying to create the system wherein even though the law is now saying people, you know, there's no slavery and people should be more equal, that clearly wasn't happening. Then the process of reconstruction took place, wherein the North was basically running the South as a police state. And during those times, African-Americans started to see some of the rights and protections that they should have had all along. But when reconstruction ends, that's when the Jim Crow era begins. And then that de jure version of government-sanctioned racism begins to come into place. And that stays in place all the way throughout. You know, it's tested at the end of the 1800s by Plessy versus Ferguson, which involves a person who is part black who sat on a train in an area that he wasn't allowed to sit. And then it goes to the Supreme Court. And basically they say separate but equal is fine in the United States. And so for over a half a century, we have this sanctioned separate but equal in our country where all these laws make it so that African-Americans have worse access to education, to voting, transportation, healthcare, you name it. I was looking in Oklahoma, the state where Johnny Bright was playing this game. Oklahoma even had rules against black marching bands playing in parades with white marching bands. Things you would never think of, like a hearse that was used for white people, couldn't also be used for black people. Just ridiculous stuff that all just chips away at equality in a society. And this is all going on. Oklahoma has an interesting history as well. Johnny Bright is playing in this game in Oklahoma. And I don't mean to pick on them because Jim Crow was affecting all of the southern states in particular, but there were northern states that exhibited as well. Our home state of Ohio had miscegenation laws in the 1870s and laws saying it was okay to have separate schools in the 1870s. The reach of Jim Crow 
was extensive from the post-Civil War years all the way up until a few things happened. Brown versus Board of Education in the 50s, Loving versus Virginia in the 60s, got rid of the anti-miscegenation laws, and of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. None of this gets rid of racism in our country, but Johnny Bright was playing a game in 1951 where a lot of these Jim Crow rules are supposed to be starting to crumble. But Johnny Bright is playing in a climate where this government-sanctioned, separate but equal, government-sanctioned racism has been in place for longer than his entire life and for most of the memory of everybody who was alive here in America at that time. It's a heck of an environment for this guy who is a star football player to emerge into. There are whispers of trying to remove segregation from sports, but Johnny Bright wasn't playing in that world yet by any means. Yeah, I ran across a book called Moments of Impact, Injury, Racialized Memory, and Reconciliation in College Football by a college professor from Penn State, Jamie Schultz. And uh, she was talking about a similar time period, a story from 1953 where J.C. Caroline from the University of Illinois couldn't get his hair cut anywhere in Champaign due to being black, yet in the barbershop that he attempted to go to, there was a picture of him playing football. So good enough to cheer on, not good enough to give a haircut. That's not surprising. Yeah. Well, we should talk a little bit more. Johnny Bright, about the who he was and about the yeah, incident itself. Sure. Johnny Bright was not just any random player. When this game is coming up in 1951, he plays for a school called Drake, which is not a football powerhouse these days. And he was going to play in Stillwater, Oklahoma, a road game against Oklahoma A&M, which would now be Oklahoma State University. And I just wanted to find out a little bit more about Johnny Bright and how good he was. There was a writer for his hometown newspaper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the News Sentinel, said, I remember him being indestructible. He had the body of Jim Brown. Another person from his hometown, one of his fellow teammates, said he was a man playing boys games. So this is in high school. Then he goes off to Drake University. And by the time the incident happens, he's been there a while. But this is a guy who, over the course of his career, averages 236 yards of total offense per game. That's pretty good. That's an insane amount, basically. He's running, he's passing, he's covering a ton of ground. And in fact, during his senior year, even though he misses three games because of this incident, because he ends up with his jaw broken, he still ends up over the course of the season having 70% of the team's points scored and 70% of the yards gained. He ends up being a first-team All-American in college football that year and finishes fifth in the Heisman Trophy voting, even though he's missed these games. So this guy is an absolute star. He goes on to Canada, plays for the Calgary Stampeders for a few years and does really well there. Then he ends up going to Edmonton, playing for a team that's now known as the Elks. It wasn't at the time because it too had a name that is considered racist. But he goes there and he wins the championship there three years in a row, the Grey Cup. He's the most outstanding player, which is often used instead of most valuable player in Canada. And one of the seasons, he becomes this legend. And he does this while spurning the team who had drafted him in the NFL. According to his own words, he said that there was an influx of a number of Southern players into the NFL at that time, especially on the heels of this other incident, which had left his jaw wired shut. He didn't want to go in a league that was getting more and more Southern players who might not accept him. So he goes up to Canada, resists numerous offers to bring him back down to the NFL over the years because 
he did well up in Canada. He went and played for these teams. He also started teaching. It's hard to imagine. In the 1950s, he had a second job. And he said the NFL wasn't offering him to pay him enough money for him to leave his good CFL job and his teaching job to come back to the United States. So he ends up retiring as the leading rusher in the history of the Canadian Football League. He's since been passed, but he had the most yards of any rusher. And after his death, which Sadly, he died of a heart attack in 1983, and the retrospectives looking back on his career were all praising him and also mentioning this racist incident. But after his death, the football field that Drake was named after him in 2006, he has a kindergarten through grade nine school in Edmonton, Alberta, named after him, and a two-year college at Drake University is named after him as well. So he's been well-honored. But probably most known for this one October afternoon in 1951, where he goes in this road game. The Oklahoma A&M players had made it well known that they intended to knock him out of the game. They used words that we won't repeat here on the podcast in doing so. So it wasn't just he's their star player. We're going to knock him out. There was definitely a little bit more to it. Some of their coaches had said those things as well. Within the first seven minutes of the game, I saw in one source, he was knocked out three times. One of the photographers that took the photo that became a Pulitzer Prize winning photo of the incident, he said that he was knocked out four times in the first quarter. So regardless, they were definitely going after Johnny Bright. And did you happen to watch, there is video of this assault. Did you end up watching it? I did when you sent the text to me. I didn't rewatch it now because I didn't really want to see it again. Johnny Bright, he played halfback slash quarterback. The lines were a little bit blurred back then, which basically means for those not as familiar with football, he's one of the people who's going to be touching the ball often. And on the play in question, after being hit a few times illegally already in the game, he hands the ball off, takes a couple steps back out of the way. So he's no longer a part of the active play. And from the side of either the picture or the video, you can watch either. You'll see the defensive end from Oklahoma A&M, Will Bank Smith, take four or five steps and you see him raising up his forearm to blast Johnny in the side of the face. That is something that's very illegal in American football to target a person who is out of the play. They're defenseless and even back then when the rules were a little bit less defined, it was the cheapest of cheap shots. A completely unprotected person taking a forearm to the head. There were no face masks on the helmets at the time, so it was a direct blow. And people in the crowd didn't see it necessarily because the play had moved on from there. They were running away and there weren't reviews or anything like that. But fortunately, there had been so much talk about this incident before it even took place that the news photographers, Don Altang and John Robinson, who ultimately won the 1952 Pulitzer for their photo series, they knew to be training a camera on Johnny Bright for this whole game. They didn't even know what images they had caught. They just saw Johnny Bright laying on the ground after the play had ended. But they rushed out of there. One of them was a pilot. They flew back to Des Moines in Iowa. They developed the film and they saw the image that became very famous. It was a gridiron assault of a black man in America. And do you know what happened after the assault, Brad? What did Oklahoma A&M say? Uh, nothing happened. They didn't see it. The president of the university, Oliver Wilhelm, denied that anything had taken place. Keep in mind, there is a six-part photo series showing exactly what had happened. And there's video showing exactly what had happened. But they just covered it up. They said it didn't happen. Drake was upset enough about it, though, that they withdrew from the Missouri Valley Conference, which was the conference in which both teams played at the time. And another university in the conference also felt strongly enough about it that they withdrew from the conference. Bradley University withdrew in solidarity. Hey-oh. 
It wasn't until 2005 that Oklahoma State University President David Schmidley wrote a letter to Drake apologizing and saying it was an ugly mark on Oklahoma State University and on college football in general. So it took many decades for that to happen. In fact, that happened in 2005, which places it a square 22 years after Johnny Bright himself had passed away. Well, another one that happened in the state of Iowa was the John or Jack Trice instance. So Iowa State's football stadium is named Jack Trice Stadium, and it was named in 1997, and it was, at the time, the only Division I football stadium named after an African-American player or alumni. And in his second college game for Iowa State in 1923 against Minnesota, he ended up being injured enough to have died from hemorrhaging in his lungs and internal bleeding a couple days afterward. They decided there wasn't enough evidence at the time to say that it was from attacks or whatever. Uh, He broke his collarbone early in the game and stated that he was fine and kept playing with a broken collarbone because he didn't want to let down his family and his race. So he went back in and he played. At one point, he gets knocked over and he gets trampled by several Minnesota players. And then a couple of days later, he dies. Iowa State refused to play Minnesota for 60 some odd years after that. I think 66 years. They didn't play again until 1989 because Minnesota never acknowledged or apologized for it. Hmm. Kind of at that same time, you had Paul Robison of Rutgers and Frederick Douglass Fritz Pollard. Fritz Pollard being a famous member of the NFL Hall of Fame and I believe the first African-American coach in the NFL. But Fritz Pollard was playing at Brown and Paul Robinson at Rutgers. And when they were breaking the respective color barriers in college sports that same year, the Birth of a Nation was released, which generally reignited interest and participation in the KKK. So here we are in sports starting to take a tiny step in the right direction. But the lie of the lost cause in the South is being celebrated in film at that exact same time. Yeah. You know, they had all these gentlemen's agreements. Yale was playing Harvard, and they had asked Harvard to not allow William Matthews to play because William Matthews was black. And uh, Yale leadership felt it was disrespectful for their students from the South if Williams played in this game in 1904. And the Harvard coach (laughs) and faculty and leadership refused to uh, sit him out. But yet he was still attacked heavily during the game. So it was lose-lose. You don't get to play, or you get to play and you get hurt. They would use that as an example for many years to justify not playing the African-American players. And it's interesting how eventually when African-Americans started to be able to play in some of these conferences and down south and things, it was motivated in great part by a desire to win more so than a desire to you know, be a, a more accepting human being and do the right thing in terms of equality. A lot of the schools just came under so much pressure from some of their fans, like these other schools that are playing black players are going to beat us if we don't change. And it's sad that that type of motivation was what it took to get the action in the 50s and into the 1960s when um, some of these places weren't allowing it. Yeah. I was trying to think of other comparable incidences in sports Certainly in general society, I mean, there's lots of famous images and videos of violence and racism and things that have been talked about a lot that I can't do justice in any way. But I was trying to think of some other sports related incidences that I put in the same boat that I would have actually recalled on my own. And the picture that that always jumps to mind is the Boston Marathon official Jack Semple accosting Catherine Switzer on the course in 1967, trying to push her off for running as a woman. Mm hmm. I guess I will never understand the fervor that gets into people that makes them think it's okay to do something like that, even if you don't agree with what's happening. The person's not causing you physical harm. They're not attacking you. They're not attacking your family. They're not taking away your livelihood. I don't understand that kind of 
feeling. And I guess it's the same with sports fanatics and the ultras in soccer and the hooligans, as an example, or people at NFL games who fight with each other as fans. I, I don't understand that kind of fervor. I like to cheer for things. I like to be excited when good things happen. But I can't understand discriminating against people and attacking people in this kind of fervor. It's just a sporting event. Like, okay, it's a woman running a marathon. Why is that hurting you? <laughs> How is that a problem? Yeah. In some cases, it's a it's a case of, you know, I have this turf and you're starting to infringe upon it in a way where you might get a chunk of it. And I don't want you to have it because it might mean I have less, which is a pretty awful way of thinking of things and is not how every one of these scenarios is motivated. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. Then I know for her, it was horrible. I know the picture um, actually captured it well. Yeah. With the original incident, because it took place in Oklahoma, and I don't have a great understanding of how places outside the Deep South dealt with issues of racism going throughout history, I probably don't have a great understanding of how any state in our country has handled those issues. I think there's plenty of guilt to point at every state. But I was just curious what was going on in Oklahoma, because really the only thing related to race and inequality that I knew about in Oklahoma was the Tulsa race massacre that had happened just over an hour away from Stillwater, about three decades before the Johnny Bright incident. And for anybody who's not familiar with the Tulsa massacre, it's essentially an alleged incident between a 19-year-old black man and a 17-year-old white woman that might have been nothing more than the man tripping in an elevator that she was in. But basically, it was said that he had assaulted this woman, and that leads to threats of lynching and just everything pops off. And by the time things are over in this massacre that took place on the 31st of May and June 1st in 1921, you have, according to some sources, 40 people dead, two-thirds of them black. Some sources say a lot more people, but that seems to be where things have settled. But you have hundreds of people injured, and you have 35 to 40 blocks of Tulsa where businesses had been destroyed, homes had been destroyed. Basically, this thriving area of African-American life had been essentially wiped out in a racially motivated terrorist attack. So Oklahoma has that history. Right. But I was interested to find out that Oklahoma also had had, in the years following the Civil War up through this attack in the 1920s, Oklahoma had more African-American towns, majority African-American towns, than any place in the United States. And do you know how that happened, Brad? I do not. I was very interested, and my wife knew all about this, but when the Trail of Tears happened and the, the Native American tribes were pushed out to the west from Florida and other places, the five civilized tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, Seminole, They're pushed out, and it was this horrible moment of how we treated Native Americans. But many of these Native Americans who came out actually owned black slaves back in the South. And so they come, they they bring their African American slaves out to the Indian territories, what we now know as Oklahoma. Then the Civil War ends, and a lot of these African Americans leave this bonded servitude, and they go, and they start forming communities for their own protection, and they ended up being very prosperous. And because they were majority African-American communities, they had Black-owned farms and schools and businesses at a time where a lot of the country was putting those Jim Crow-type laws in place, and those types of experiences were being denied to Black Americans. So Oklahoma was actually being advertised as a promised land for Black settlers and was thriving. 
And then in 1907, Oklahoma becomes a state and Jim Crow laws start being put in place. And all of this potential, all these potential gains in this paradise for Black Americans that had been established there. And and this is according, I read a lot of this from the University of Tulsa's website for their Center for Humanities. But a lot of those gains that had been made by Black people in Oklahoma were lost by the same laws statehood taking place so much later just made the profile that much easier to notice. It was that stark from what had happened before statehood to what had come after and Jim Crow going into place. I knew that there had been black servants that were kept by Native Americans in some areas, but I had no idea of this thriving community of black people that had taken place in Oklahoma at that time period. And by the time the game happens, Oklahoma A&M had desegregated, but there was still definitely a Jim Crow attitude that was predominant within the community and within the school. Certainly knew about the Trail of Tears. I didn't know much about the rest of that. Well, at the end of the day, I thought it was great that we had this podcast format so that we could look into an incident in what is a very bad track record that our country has in terms of racism. And just a chance to learn a little bit more. This is a guy who, had he gone to the NFL, I don't know if he would have been Jim Brown, but it sounds like he could have been this player that we knew everything about. He goes up to Canada and this incident is kind of hidden and it's just a good opportunity, I think, to learn a lot more about it. And hopefully our audience will have learned a little bit about Johnny Bright, about, you know, another layer of injustice in our society. And maybe we can help use that as another springboard to, to trying to, you know, do better. Yeah, I mean, that's all we can hope is we take a serious look at ourselves in a time when we're, as a nation, a lot of parts of our nation are pulling back on talking about and learning about uncomfortable pieces of our history and and uncomfortable pieces of our present time. Yeah, true. You know, I don't want that to be me. I wish it wasn't us as a country, but it's where we are. So any little piece we can do to help bring light to things that make people think about themselves and their actions, I'm, I'm all for yeah. And I'm sure next week it'll be back to your regularly scheduled programming of us talking about stupid crap that nobody cares about. I hope so. While it's good to talk about serious things from time to time, I'm also very excited when we talk about nature jumping on balconies and things like that. <laughs> well, one man who's definitely capable of talking about serious things, but we only ask him to talk about really stupid stuff is our father art. So let's ask him some questions. Recall hearing about football player Johnny Bright before your sons started talking about him? No. As someone who grew up during the civil rights movement of the mid-1900s, do you have any specific sports memories in which race played a significant role? I guess probably when Texas Western won the national championship beating Kentucky, although since I've I've heard that uh, neither team made a big deal of it at the time. Interesting. Now, you were just telling me something about Michigan State football. Yeah, I just heard recently that in the 1966 10-10 tie with Notre Dame that Michigan State had 18 black starters and Notre Dame only had one, who was Alan Page. Between Sir Francis Drake, Drake University, Drake the Rapper, or any other Drake of your choice, who is your favorite Drake? Well, Drake the Rapper is my favorite Drake, although... You know, I, I do have a soft spot for Drake University, too. Oh, okay. 
Would you rather play professional football in Edmonton or Philadelphia? Oh, uh, Edmonton, I, I, I think I'd be afraid that the fans would kill me in Philadelphia. <laughs> Well, folks, now that we've heard from Father Art, it means that our time together is coming to an end for this episode. We've said just about everything we're prepared to say for the moment about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Catherine Switzer, Jack Trice, Jim Thorpe, Fritz Pollard, the Pulitzer Prize, and how Carnegie Hall helped Tchaikovsky turn his lies into self-affirmation. But fear not, just as soon as we can dig back into the archives and find another gem of a text exchange, there'll be another episode coming your way. In the meantime, you can head over to our Instagram page at Things I Text My Brother Podcast to drop us a note about what you liked, what you didn't like, or to tell us about something we got totally wrong. You might even have enough time to go tell a friend, an enemy, and a total stranger to give us a listen as well. If you manage to do any of that, the fraternity of Druyards will be forever grateful. But most importantly, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. So how did Ethan almost die in uh, the Dungeons and Dragons game? Uh, he uh, was playing to his character's personality. And what being, was his character? His character is... Uh, a dragon goblin oaf? No, his character is a tiefling rogue. Uh, so he's a thief and uh, a rogue. And um, he is impulsive. So his name is Zadar, Zayora. And Zadar runs in headlong into every encounter without thinking. Leroy Jenkins. We did a a Leroy Jenkins in the middle of the game. (laughs) I gave him a Leroy Jenkins. Yeah. He was saved by your wife? Uh, Yes. She uh, performed a a cure wounds spell because she is a... What was her character? She's a Hildorf cleric named Eldith Iron Fist. Eldith Iron Eldith Iron Fist. Eldith Iron Fist. Yeah. Does she yeah. have pointy ears? Uh, she does not. She's a dwarf, oh. not an elf. Now, Bryn's character. So why is she named Elfrith? Eldith. 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 Bryn's character's name is Serana Cold Harbor, and she's a wood elf ranger, so she likes to engage in, in battle with a bow from distance. and uh, Legolas. Is, Yes, basically friends with the friends with the animals, and then uh, and then Angie, uh, Angie's character is a uh, her character's name Taco McGuffer. Uh, no, her character's name was Nora Swiftwillow, and uh, she was a druid, a cheese eating druid ninja, a three foot forty pound druid. Mm. And you don't get a character because you're just the dungeon master. I'm dungeon master. At one point, uh, Angie or Ethan was carrying. Well, Zadar was carrying Nora on his back and uh, ran headfirst into an encounter with Nora on his back. So did anybody die there? Uh, No, nobody died, thankfully, because we're only in part one of four parts. So we have much time left to play. So I'm glad. Do you already know how it ends? Like, how does it end? With tears in a journey, as all things must. But like, uh-huh. how do you know when a game ends? Like, do uh, you achieve in this one a goal that you have set? The game ends when everybody quits, all the characters die, or all four parts of the adventure have been completed, and they have successfully completed the goal of this 
uh, quest, which I'm not going to divulge because uh, we may have listeners who are playing the game and I don't want to tell them what the ultimate goal is because they don't know the ultimate goal yet. Hmm. I hope none of the ogre hobbits die in the next round. Indeed. <laughs>